Well, this is Ascension Sunday, a somewhat neglected theme, I think, but the Ascension Sunday is in many ways a capstone, Advent to Easter to Ascension. It's a glorious day, full of rich significance and living comfort for the church. Um, And our text will be the text from Ephesians chapter 1, the New Testament, or the second lesson today. You might also note that this text from Ephesians 1, uh, it is near the top of our monthly prayer sheets, which I encourage you to pick up on the uh, table in the narthex. Um, It is one, then, of the banner texts for our life together, our prayer life together as a community. And I urge you to use this text um, as a guide to prayer. Much like the Lord's Prayer is a guide to prayer, this text is a guide to prayer. You can use it as a guide, but you can also use it as a prayer in its own right. So, it's an extremely rich text. We want to just sort of scratch the surface of it today. Um, We'll be looking at it under two headings, which I'm calling Praying from the Ascension and Praying Through the Ascension. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. So, first then, Praying from the Ascension. And what we mean here is praying because Christ has ascended. Praying on the basis of the ascension. For in fact, there would be no praying if it were not for the ascension. Right? We would not be praying even to a resurrected Christ who had not ascended on high. Through the ascended one, The Father sends the Spirit. The Spirit descends. The Son ascends. The Spirit descends. And prayer becomes possible. So all praying, all Christian life, really, all Christian communion with Christ, is praying from or communion in the ascension. It's something that happens only out of our spirit-wrought union with the heavenly Christ. Right? Prayer is offered before God in the heavenly temple. That's where it is presented. That's why it's an ascension-based reality. And so Paul is praying here, and he has a kind of heading, a kind of introduction to the prayer. He prays that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which he calls the source of wisdom and the source of revelation, would be given to us so that... Now, some of you know I love the so that's in the Bible, right? You pay attention to the so that... Because Paul's telling you, this is the rationale. This is the end. So he prays that the Spirit would be given to us so that we might know God better. That's the reason the Holy Spirit is given. That you might have wisdom and knowledge in the, knowledge, in, the, in the wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. The Spirit is given so that we might know God. This is eternal life, Jesus said. Eternal life is not a byproduct of knowing God. It is in the act of intimate knowledge of God. That is eternal life, that, you might, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the purpose of the ascension. In Peter's language, it is to bring us to God. For God is the beauty which we are restless to possess. He is the full satisfaction of our intellects which long for the truth. He's the full satisfaction of our wills which yearn for the good. 
And so though we often get derailed, we forget these things, nothing but the triune being of God can satisfy a human person, the human creature. And thus, this is to be our passion. And it is to this that the ascension directs us. So Paul prays for the Spirit to be given, and he wants the Spirit, he says, to enlighten the eyes of your heart. That is a beautiful phrase, right? The eyes of your hearts being enlightened. Your your secret eyes. Your interior sense of seeing. Your deep spiritual intuition. Right? We're often often kind of smothered in darkness and confusion. There, in the inner being, the spirit brings light. The spirit brings illumination. For it's in the light of the triune God that we can know God. So given this brief introduction, this is the frame in which Paul is praying. What precisely then does he ask for? Because he asks for some specific things here. He asks for three things. They are not, we should note, the top three things we normally pray about. I think that's important. right? We, we have to have our prayers reformed by the apostolic praying. When you read the New Testament, pay attention to the prayers. They might be brief. They might be a little longer. This one's a little longer. But they'll give you apostolic priorities. So let's call the three things here hope, inheritance, and power. This is what praying from or praying out of the ascension looks like. So the first thing, when he actually gets to a concrete petition... The first thing Paul prays is that we might know the hope of our calling or the hope to which God has called us. Now, this is not like the hope of your calling conceived in an individualistic way, like God has called me to be a doctor or a teacher or whatever. That's not what Paul has in view here. This is that to which he summons the whole church. This is the hope of glory, the hope of heaven, the hope of the eschaton. This is the first thing Paul prays for. You are partakers of a heavenly calling, an upward, a vertical call of God in Jesus Christ. This is the hope which is held out in the gospel. Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 1. He says this, The hope stored up for you in heaven about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. What the gospel communicates to men is this, a hope laid up for them in heaven. So notice this, and this is, this is miles, worlds away from our praying, right? The beginning of Paul's prayer is the eschaton. It is the end. He knows nothing of our merely and perpetual this worldly praying. His prayers diffuse the fragrance of heaven itself from the ascension, he prays. He does not eventually get around to the hope of glory. Dear Lord, I pray for this, and I pray for that, and I pray for this, and I pray for that, and I pray for this, and we thank you that at the end, Jesus will come and we'll go to heaven. That's not how Paul prays. He starts with the end. And this is the fundamental difference between apostolic praying and contemporary praying. The hope to which you are called, the blessed hope of the church, 
Paul says, is the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The church does not have two hopes or three hopes. She has one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope of your calling. And so that's why Peter says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So Paul is in labor in his apostolic ministry to form a people who through the ascension are oriented to this unseen but certain and glorious future. We are saved, he tells us, in this hope. So you don't have salvation and then hope at the end, right? Hope is the atmosphere of salvation. We are saved in hope. This hope, now get this, Paul prays that this hope will light your inner being up right now. Right? That, that, that you will shine with the splendor of eschatological expectation. That's how he starts a prayer. This, he thinks, is the indispensable companion of faith in Jesus Christ. So why is this his first theme, we might ask? Well, it's Ascension Sunday, and this is an Ascension text. This is a traditional text. I didn't pick the text out. The text is right there. It's the second lesson for Ascension Sunday. Right? The book of Hebrews tells us what? Jesus is our pioneer, right? He's our forerunner. And you know what that means? He has ascended, and he has reached the goal of his pilgrimage. He has come where Adam would have gone had Adam been obedient. He has come namely to face-to-face communion with his Father in the bond of the Spirit, in embodied, immortal, resurrected glory. He has entered the Sabbath glory of God, the Sabbath rest to which the whole creation is destined. And you know, the Heidelberg Catechism asks a question. The question is, how does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? Right, that's the question everyone asks, right? That's, that's sort of the bottom line question. The so what question. And the answer is this. We have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ our head will also take us, his members, up to himself. The ascension is a vertical displacement, not just of Jesus, but of you. Where he goes, there we go. The ascension is Christ entering the heavenly sanctuary, presenting his eternally all-sufficient sacrifice, and thereby securing our eternal redemption, securing our hope of glory. That's the glory to which you are called. The glory which Christ now possesses as ascended. His eternal glory. We are summoned to it. And Paul prays here at the opening, right, that the light of the Spirit sent down from that heavenly height would give you to know, to be intimately acquainted with, to be lit up interiorly with the hope to which God himself summons the church. Now, it is one thing to know this in a confessional sense, right? There are no Christians who would say, well, of course, uh, that's our hope. You know, I'm not, I, there's no one who denies that that's the hope of the church ultimately, right? It's one thing to know it. 
It is another thing to have Paul's prayer here answered, which is to be lit up by the reality of it. Right? The church has the first thing. The second thing is completely absent. So that's the first thing he prays for. The second thing he prays for is we're calling inheritance. He says, I pray that you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, the saints. Now the prayer takes an interesting twist here. In some ways, this is the same petition, just reworded. You have our hope, and then you have God's hope. Because right now, Paul's not talking about your inheritance or my inheritance. He's not talking about our inheritance in God. That's a wonderful and blessed thing, right? The Holy Spirit is a down payment of our inheritance. But notice, this is about God's inheritance in you. God's inheritance in the saints. So, for example, in the Old Testament, Israel is often spoken of as God's inheritance. Jonathan Edwards says, The Father created the world so that the Son could redeem a people. Purchase a people through the Spirit for the Father. So you, the church of Jesus Christ, you are the glorious inheritance of God. You are his portion. You are the gift that God begins to receive now and will receive fully at the end from the Son. Now, I don't know how we could be led to a higher esteem of the church than this. The church is God's own inheritance. And Paul says, look, I want you to grasp the glory of this, the splendor of it, right? the wealth, the beauty of the bride of Christ in all of her long pilgrimage, north, south, east, west, 2nd century, 11th century, 17th century, every tribe, every tongue, every language. That body, redeemed by the Lord, is a treasure that God is laying up for himself. Right? Because the hope to which you are called is the hope that you will partake of with that same company. I always think this is a good text to remind us to kind of sometimes break outside of our own tradition and read in other dimensions of the Christian church because the whole Catholic church, East and West, ancient and modern, is God's inheritance, right? And so you don't want to be locked up in your own little corner of the body of Christ. You want to read widely to see something of the glory and the splendor of God's own inheritance. There's a, there's a lovely and majestic Fourth century song called the Te Deum. Right? You, can, you can get this like in the, in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, which is the great product of the English Reformation. And in the Te Deum, it's a song of praise to God, and it, it speaks of the saints before God, and it's it giving, rendering him praise, the triune Lord. And it includes in it, the text says, the glorious company of the apostles praise thee. The goodly fellowship of the prophets praise thee. And the noble army of the martyrs praise thee. And of course, that's just the beginning, right? We'd have to name the whole array of the royal priesthood of of the church, the whole company of the faithful. We are, in all of our brokenness and foibles, we are God's treasure, God's inheritance. You are the first fruits of a reconciled humanity and a new cosmos. And it's the ascension, right? It's the ascension which assures us that all of God's inheritance shall be brought all the way home because the head has been brought all the way home.
The head has ascended into glory. The body shall surely follow. So the third thing Paul prays for, third thing we should know is his incomparably great power for us who believe. So it's hope. It's God's inheritance. And now it's power. There's a kind of logic here, right? Because these things are wondrous things. They're astonishing things. They are not things which are visible. These things don't just emerge from the processes of history. These are resurrection realities. They require supernatural, sovereign exertion. The same power, Paul says, as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So when you think about your hope of glory, right, and you think about how God getting his full inheritance, Paul's mind works like this. These things require resurrection. And we already have seen the inbreaking of this in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he piles up the terms here. Mighty power, strength, exertion. That power, he says. Now get this. That power which was seen in the resurrection, he says this. It's at work in you. Right? The whole Christian life, even in its cross-shaped weakness, is a life lived out of the incomparable resurrection power of God. Right? There, there is no Christianity apart from resurrection. But more than that, look, at the text says, the power raised Christ from the dead. It was exerted when God raised him, verse 20 says, and. Notice that and in verse 20. You know what's in that and? The ascension is in that and. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, which here means heaven itself. So look what has happened, right? In a few short sentences, Paul, praying from the ascension, has prayed himself right up to the ascension. And that brings us to the second point, which is praying through the ascension. So this is the second point. So, Seating Christ at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms is, first of all, an act of incomparably great power. Right? This is not a mere footnote to the resurrection. Nor is it something like, well, Jesus is raised, now he has to go back to heaven. Or some kind of a vanishing act. This is the elevation of our humanity into heaven itself. Right? The ascension is why you have every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. It's why you are seated with him in the heavenly places. And Paul here unfolds, begins to unfold further, some rich ascension theology. I'm going to notice three more things in this second point about the prayer. Here's the first one. The first is the ascension is an act of triumphant exaltation and victory. He is at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms. He is in the glory-filled throne room of God, dwelling where myriads of angels dwell. Dwelling where the spirits of the just made perfect are. He lives within our hearts, we say, and that's all well and good. But first and foremost, more importantly, he lives, as Psalm 110 says, and Psalm 110 is prophesying of the ascension. He lives seated at the right hand of the Father, right? waiting for his enemies to become a footstool for his feet. He is exalted, not just above, notice this in the text, but far above. 
Not just some rule, but all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion. The enemies to be conquered are, in a decisive way, already conquered. They may not have conceded yet, but as Luther says, lo, their doom is sure. And he is above not just these named powers. He is seated above every name that is invoked, now or in the age to come. That is, he is above every conceivable intelligent being. Every being is a being subjected to the ascended Christ. All authority is his in heaven and on earth, and to him, as ascended, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess his lordship, either now or later. So the ascension proclaims the unbounded universality of the kingship and the victory of Jesus Christ. And the second thing to note, and this follows from the first, right, is that the ascension is thus a pledge of a redeemed creation. Notice verse 22. God placed all things under his feet. Now you know what that refers back to, right? Genesis chapter 1. Adam. Adam was originally given dominion over the creation. Now the fall derailed and distorted that calling, but this is the second Adam. The second Adam now brought to ascension glory, now brought to the heavenly destiny the first Adam would have obtained had he been obedient. Jesus has achieved what Adam and what you and I in Adam were called to do but failed to do, and that means he's now the head of a new creation. Even in an escalated way, you know, you'll notice if you read this text, it's not just the animals, it's not just the lower creation which is subjected to this man. But all things. God did not give Adam dominion over the principalities and powers and over every name that is named. He does give that dominion to the second Adam. Jesus rules not only the lower creation, he rules the invisible creation. He rules the whole cosmos. Hebrews tells us, it is the world to come which is subjected to this Christ. But we're in a kind of tension right now. Notice, Hebrews says this, Hebrews chapter 2. We do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see Jesus. What Jesus? The ascended Jesus. The glorified Jesus. Made for a little while lower than the angels. But now crowned in his ascension with honor and glory. And we have to fix our eyes on him. It's crucial that we do. Calvin comments on this, and he says, We still lie under the power of death, but he, raised from the dead by heavenly power, has the dominion of life. We still struggle with the bondage of sin. We are surrounded by misery. We fight a hard warfare. But he, sitting at the right hand of the Father, obtains the highest government in heaven and earth and triumphs gloriously over the enemies whom he has subdued and vanquished. We see Jesus, right? And we partake of that heavenly glory already by faith. And that is enough. It is the pledge that we and the whole creation are destined to share that immortal glory, which is now Christ's. 
So third and finally, praying through the ascension. The text tells us that Christ was appointed to be the head over everything to the church. The church which is his body. So it's the ascension which makes Jesus the great head and king of the church. And from the height which knows no measure, as one of our hymns puts it, right? He sends down the spirit. And he creates and he gathers and he nurtures. He protects his bride with his invincible power. He directs and rules and overturns everything for the sake of his people. This is an extraordinary uh, text on the church. The text is here called, it's spoken of as the fullness of Christ. Right? And the point is that he fills the church up with the life of the Holy Trinity. Through the Spirit, the Father and the Son come to dwell in you. By the way, this is a, a little bit of a anticipation of what Paul will say two chapters later in this same book. In Ephesians chapter 3, he will pray that God will, out of his fullness and out of his glory, fill you up, fill the church up with the triune life of God so that you might be, he says, filled up to all the fullness of God himself. That, I think, by the way, is the most extraordinary prayer ever. You might also notice that prayer is also on our prayer sheet as one of the banner prayers for this community. Paul is alluding to that here, right? Christ fills the church up with the life of God, flooding the church, filling her with all the fullness of God. This is praying out of and through the ascension. And really, we haven't scratched the surface of what's here. So, but let me conclude with a couple practical applications. Um, so what should the Ascension do for us? We already, we already heard it from the Heidelberg Catechism's answer. But I'm going to give you a slightly different answer. First, it should make us pray like this. Right? The Ascension should impact, reshape, restructure, reform, redirect our prayer lives. If it hasn't done that for you, let it be so this year. Right? We are to pray to know our hope to know the riches of God's inheritance, to know his incomparable power displayed already in Jesus Christ, the same power which will be exerted on the whole cosmos to secure the inheritance of God, to secure your very glory. All of this is pledged and sealed because it has already happened in Christ, to Christ. The ascension should make us pray like this. Again, Just to reiterate, if you would just take this prayer from Ephesians 1 and the companion prayer from Ephesians 3, I believe that God, through his spirit, would bless and enrich your prayer life greatly. I often have found over the years that when I feel difficulty praying, or I'm meandering, or wandering, or lethargic, or I don't know what to pray for, I'll go to these two texts. Not all the time, but when I remember it, I'll go to these two texts. I wish I'd do it more often. But when I go to them, I am never disappointed. Right? The Spirit just reorients me to the permanent things, to Christ and his exalted glory and to being filled up with the life of God. And then, then you can start to pray for you know, the sick or all the practical, concrete things. We never lay those things aside. But we, they, they then get gathered up into this idea of you're praying for these people to know the hope of their, of, of their calling. 
When's the last time any one of us ever prayed for a fellow Christian, dear Lord, let them have a clearer, more intimate, vital connection to their eschatological glory that lies before them? But that's how Paul prays. We think, well, they're already Christians. They're going to heaven. If they don't have a broken arm and they're not out of a job, let's go on to the next person. But Paul wants them to be filled up with all the fullness of God's life. That's how he prays. Dear Lord, fill my brother or my sister or my mother or whoever up with your triune life. Flood them with your glory. Light up their inner being that they might know this hope. This is how we should be praying. And then in that context, we pray for all the other stuff. And the second thing the ascension does for us, and this one's obvious, is it makes us celebrate and exult in and adore this Christ. He's triumphant. He's victorious in his heavenly splendor above all foes. Right? He's the last Adam. He's the bringer of the new creation. He's that great head and king of the church. But he's the one whose ascension into the heavenly temple means that the whole creation will become a cosmic temple filled with his glory. Every atom, every subatomic particle. Right? The whole creation is destined to be a cosmic temple of praise to Christ because he is now being praised that way in the heavenly temple. Even now, our text concludes, even now, he fills not only the church, but he fills, notice this, everything in every way with his presence. Right? There's not an independent particle. He fills everything in every way with his presence. All glory be to the ascended Christ, now and forever. Amen.